Welcome to the Sustainable Jungle podcast. I'm Joy, and today we're shooting the breeze with Primash Kovacic, the founder of Spatial Collective, and Michelle Kathegi, his right-hand superstar. Spatial Collective is a social enterprise based in the Silicon Savannah of Nairobi, Kenya, and they use the latest technology blended with hands-on input from local communities to build rich, digitized maps and information about informal settlements and other unmapped parts of Africa. In addition to providing training, skills, and jobs to local communities, this information is also used by NGOs and governments to improve the lives of the people in these often forgotten communities. We recorded this episode in the Spatial Collective office in a busy part of bustling Nairobi to the sounds of a lively city. We discussed how knowledge and data can give power back to the people and make real, meaningful change. As always, you can find the show notes and the links at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. So without further ado, let's get inspired by this dynamic duo from Spatial Collective. Could you guys start by giving us a little bit of background? Where were you born and where did you grow up? I grew up in Slovenia, where you know I lived till I was 29 years old. I uh, did my engineering degree there, pretty much lived my life there, had a job, all these things, but then... At a certain point, I decided I wanted to do something else, and 29, I moved to Kenya. Uh, I came for a holiday for six months to kind of figure out what I want to do with my life. I went to a place called Taita Hills, which is in the coast of Kenya. Uh, and the place is beautiful. It's very mountainous, it's very green, it's like uh, indigenous rainforest up there. It reminded me a bit about of home, I guess. Not that we have rainforest, but Slovenia is very green and mountainous. And then I just kind of stayed there with a the family and uh, because, you know, I'm a surveyor, I make maps, I collect data, I was very curious about how the place looks like. So I had a small GPS unit and a computer and I started mapping houses and roads and businesses. And this is what you were doing in your free time? Yeah, yeah, just, uh, just for fun. And then I made a map. <laughs> As you do. <laughs> Michelle, Michelle, for the listeners, uh, Michelle's a sugar head. <laughs> and basically, yeah, I made a map of that community. I gave it to them and I just found it really interesting and really cool. And then I realized that, you know, the world is not mapped yet. Like most people think, even when I studied, they say, why? Why do you want to study surveying? Hasn't the world been mapped yet? It turns out that a lot of it has not been documented or mapped. So I came back to Nairobi and I joined a project to map Kibera, which is just 200 meters from here. And it's Kibera is considered the world, well, the sub-Saharan largest slum with about 300,000 people living in it. And that's how it started. We started teaching people how to make maps by themselves. And that kind of, after a while, led to Spatial Collective. I'm curious about that very first community where you did the mapping initially and you gave them the maps. What did they what did they say and what did they do and how did they react? Um, they, they were super excited. I mean, if you go up there now, you're going to see maps hanging in a bunch of houses. <laughs> and, and this is like a traditional map. Yeah. yeah, yeah. it's like a topographic map, basically. It shows you the contours of the terrain. It shows you the, you know, the locations of houses, of different amenities like water points, rivers, roads, and all of this. So it's just a lot of detail. It's pretty detailed, yeah. So I used various techniques, but I guess I studied that, so that, that's my background. You did geodetic engineering. engineering. What I studied is, you see this guy standing at the side of the road with those weird instruments. The yellow things. The yellow things, yeah. yeah, yeah. So basically that thing is just a viewfinder and, uh, and a laser, right? And then you orient yourself somewhere, you get the location where that instrument is standing, 
and then another guy will walk around with basically a mirror and then you will shoot the laser at him and you will put the points down on earth so that's how they uh-huh. they make uh, you know they show where the roads are supposed to be the level of the roads it's a lot of math and physics yeah, i didn't like that <laughs> you just like the laser part <laughs> I, just, I, I like the i like the profession itself yeah. i thought it was nice to be outside and uh, then i just took it to a different level i guess not mapping roads or tunnels or bridges, but mapping communities. So. How about you, Michelle? What's your background? I'm Michelle Gavegi. I was born and bred in Kenya. So most of my childhood has been basically here in Nairobi. Um, and my teenage years were mostly spent in Uganda. We lived in Uganda for about five to six years. When I came back, I joined university here for my first degree, a Bachelor of Science in International Business Management. Um, not really majoring in any of those courses, but generally just looking at business management, accounting, economics, human resource, cultural management, this kind of stuff. And then in that process is where I came across Spatial Collective, mainly when I needed to do my internship, because this was a requirement um, to be able to complete your degree and graduate. So it was literally the last thing I was doing in my course. And somehow my my CV got to, um, the previous co-director Jamie and she gave me she sent me an email um, asking if I would like to work at Spatial Collective and at that point I was totally green about GIS and geospatial <laughs> stuff I had absolutely no idea she introduced what spatial is all about and I just found myself googling and not understanding just like <laughs> this is so complex like I don't know what what sort of work these guys do I have no idea what field this is but I was like okay it's okay, I'll do it. It turned out to be great. Uh, I sort of understood what they were doing in the beginning and just the whole idea of engaging with the communities, I think, is what really drove me um, or, or like piqued my interest. And yeah, just when I got into it, I really now understood what the whole purpose of this data collection and just understanding communities for what they are, what this importance is all about and why it has such an impact in people's lives. I also spent about a year and a half in the UK to pursue my master's in international relations, diplomacy specifically. I managed to get a scholarship to go and do my master's, which had been an all-time passion, um, the field. And then when I was done, I knocked on Spatial Collective's door again and I've been more engaged than I was even before, and mainly because of the different array of projects that we've been doing. So, I mean, for me, it has been a great experience um, being part of the Spatial Collective family. And literally, this has been my first job, and I think it has really, really impacted my life. You yeah. know, she's basically running the company, so <laughs> you know, she's not a lie. No, it's not a lie. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. And now tell us, what actually is GIS? Because I'm sure we're going to talk about that throughout this interview. But so for the, the benefit of the listeners, what does GIS mean? Geographic Information Systems. So it has multi, multiple components. It's the data collection, it's data management, it's data visualization, it's the whole community around it. And uh, you know everything happens at a particular space in a particular time. So our interview happens at a particular location at a particular time period, right? And it takes about this long. And you know when you leave for your hotel, you're going to use certain roads, you're going to travel a certain time, we're going to go certain different directions. All of that can be visualized and measured and, you know, explained through data, right? And that's basically what GIS does, is to show kind of like things, people, amenities, whatever, in 
space and time. That's how I like to imagine it. And does it always have a technology element, or does it not it's, necessarily? It's not have necessarily. Okay. Uh, we use a lot of methods which are very simple because we work with communities which are maybe not that tech savvy. Although in uh, in Kenya that's not really the case anymore because everybody has a phone nowadays. There's a huge percentage of people going into 40, 50 percent or even more in some urban settings, you know, that have smartphones. People are used to computers and internet now, so maybe just in rural areas you find some people that are a little bit less tech savvy. But we use methods where people just draw things, you know, they draw their environments, they draw their feelings, you know, they draw things that, you know, we're interested in. And then we can turn that into beautiful visualizations also, so it doesn't have to be always tech-based. So, for example, we had a project on perceptions of safety of people in one informal settlement. Uh, the settlement had about 30,000, 40,000 people. What we did was we first digitized all of the houses so we could see how the streets are laid out. And then we basically put the maps on the walls. We had multiple questions, you know, it's like a qualitative research, basically. We were asking people, you know, where do you live, where do you buy this or that, which routes are you taking, and then tell us two or three places apart from your home within the community that you visit most often. So they would identify them just by drawing on the map. And then we would ask them to draw us a line where they usually walk and if they feel safe or unsafe in that particular area. Uh, if they feel unsafe, they would use a certain color. If they feel safe, they would use a different color. And then we were able to kind of put all of these, you know, drawings together and kind of see how men versus women feel walking around the community. We were able to identify hot spots, you know, just by people drawing on it. We were able to identify different amenities, different resources that are available. And all of this happened without using any technology, basically, apart from the base layer that we created before. Yeah, so I, I guess it, sometimes, you know, you just need to be a little bit creative with the way you get the data set. And the project was for the World Bank, you know, it wasn't some, some small school project that we did. It was actually for a serious client. So and they were pretty happy with it. Okay, so that is a summary of GIS. Is there anything else that Spatial Collective do? Our basis and what is really important about Spatial Collective is the fact that we work with communities to, to identify um, data that's important to them and create this data with them. We sort of transfer skills to the people that we work with. Other than that, I would say our work is not limited to just one area, for example, like the crime and insecurity. We do an array of many, many other projects, um, water and sanitation, waste management, um, education. And to us, it just really depends on what it is our client um, requires. If, if I just jump in, mm. like, so why would we even do this, right? Like, this is touching on governance. If I mm. put my academic hat on, you have something that some people call area of limited statehood where the state is not necessarily involved in providing services such as water, sanitation, education, electricity, security, you know, and these are an example of that are the slums in Nairobi or anywhere else in the world. You will see that the, the formal grid kind of stops where the slums begin. So in these areas an alternative governance modality emerges, something separate from the state itself. So that means that people self-organize to provide these services. That means, for example, that in Matara you have, I think, half a dozen 
public schools and more than 100 private schools. And those schools are run by charities, NGOs, individuals, you know, religious institutions. And this is basically an alternative way that the, this governance around education is organized there. The same thing happens with security, the police really take care of security in the slums, it's the communities themselves through community policing and all sorts of other measures. The same happens with water, sanitation, all of these things. And that is why we map. Well, spatial kind of started because we were curious to see how these places organize themselves, what we can learn from them, and uh, how we can maybe, you know, if there is a possibility to include them in the formal grid without also destroying all of the social dynamics that already exist there. Oftentimes on TV you will see a bulldozer going into the slum and just bulldozing everything, but that is not a solution where you have millions of people living in these conditions. I mean, where are they gonna go? So we believe, you know, you need to improve these places to become more livable. And if you don't have the right information and data, then how are you gonna do that? Mm -hmm. So, and this is basically the gap that we're filling. If uh, an organization works in education, you know, they're curious to have this data set. They, they might not have a capacity to collect the data themselves, but that is what we do, you know. Mm -hmm. So we go out there, we collect locations of schools, they give us a long questionnaire, you know. We answer this about every school, you know, whether the school has electricity, how many students, teacher, student-teacher ratio, do they have sanitation, do they have water. And then, then we also did interviews with parents because, you know, we wanted to get the both sides the school authority from and wanted to hear from the parents what they think as well and then we packaged this and you know we gave it to in this case was a human rights organization who deals with education mm -hmm. and now they can use this to recommend different policy solutions to the government based on the data that was collected but the data was collected by the people themselves that is a very important part of spatial collective because you know in every community we go as you see like our office is very small but we've trained hundreds of people in Kenya alone on various methods like GPS data collection, you know, satellite imagery, digitization. And they also oftentimes hold to this data set, right? Because we want communities to have access to this data as well. You know, we don't want to just take, we want them to also have it. So can you guys share some stories of impact, positive impact that you've seen as a result of your work here at Special Collective? There's lots, like the one that I'm most proud of maybe is, you know, that we were able to share this knowledge with hundreds of young people in Nairobi alone and in Kenya, you know, in general, and also other countries, because we did this project also in Nigeria, and we have a project now in Tanzania. And so basically in Nairobi, every community we go, we have people who we've already trained in the past and they can immediately jump on board and help. Some of them started their own organizations and got funding from abroad to do all sorts of different data collection in various parts of Kenya uh, or the slums. So that's something that I'm proud of because a lot of, you know, a lot of them otherwise wouldn't have an access to that type of knowledge maybe. I saw your talk on PubTech and you alluded to why you do this. Maybe you can share that story. I always wanted to do something, something meanif meaningful with my life. Actually, you know, the, the truth is I, in 2009, I, I felt quite unhappy with, you know, where I was in my life at that time. And I climbed uh, Mont Blanc with my father, right? And we got caught in a storm almost on the top 
and we barely made it out and we had to be rescued from the mountain after two days and what wow yeah, and some people some people actually lost their lives <gasps> that time and um i was quite shaken by the experience and i realized really? you know from basically it happened from very calm weather to hell in, within five minutes you know and uh so I was shaken by that experience and then I decided, look, I came so close to not making it and what the hell have I done with my life? So that's when I decided, uh, I mean, three months after that I was in Kenya, right? So I don't know, I just don't, you know, sitting at home, being upset about things, you know, I don't think that's the way to do it. And then also I was a, little, I was a bit taken back and shocked about this whole refugee crisis that happened because it happened in, at home. Because um, most of these refugees, about you know, a couple of years ago, went through Slovenia actually, and uh, most of my friends were there. And this was kind of for me. This would be the only thing that I would go back home to do. Um, but I realized, you know, this is something much bigger than it, it's bigger than even what's shown on TV. I think this is just kind of like a, it's it's a very global thing. I think there is coming to movements, you know. Of, People are moving around, migration, you know, globalization is happening even on a larger scale. But then also like these people were fleeing something, they were going from somewhere, right? So I, I don't think that sitting at home, I can really do much about it. But down here, maybe maybe I can, you know, because um, a lot of the people leave from Kenya as well to go abroad, you know. So, I mean, I kind of wanted to be in the center of it, if that makes sense. And I've always seen Spatial Collective as, you know, almost like a laboratory of trying different things, almost like preparing ourselves for the future, you know, even though the future kind of, it's already here. Michelle, I just want to quickly, if you wanted to add anything to that, was there any particular reason why Spatial Collective was the go-to career for you in terms of social good? Information really is power. Clients come to us and they're clueless. They, there is no data. <laughs> they have absolutely no idea how to do whatever it is they want to do. And they literally just need the information. And for me, today, I understand what it is to have information. Information that is credible, information that is also up-to-date data. I'm more aligned with Spatial Collective mainly because of the work we do. Like our work really it does impact the people. And like like she is saying, everywhere we've gone, we've worked with communities. And we have networks with these guys. They will call and say, oh, is there any more work? Can we do this and that? We have some ideas and this kind of thing. And that's when you realize how much impact that you had just on them, them, them specifically, mainly because they've learned how to collect data via GPS. They've learned mobile data collection. They've learned how to read maps. And in the community, they actually become leaders. Um, people go to them with issues, you know. So that kind of thing, there's that knock-on effect. I wanted to ask you guys, and speaking of problems of the world, yeah. uh, you have both spent time outside of Kenya, you spent a lot of time inside Kenya, you've lived in other countries. You both probably have a very unique perspective on the world and where we're going. I wondered if you could share your thoughts on what you're most worried about for humanity. I mean, there's there's many. For me, what, what bothers me the most is this inequality in the world, that, you know, very few people have everything and most people have nothing. And I don't think that that is sustainable, right? Like, migration crisis is one of the, you know, manifestations of this. I feel like the systems that we've created, the nation state, you know, it's it's a little bit under pressure right now. 
it's not working in many places. You know, some states are literally falling apart. Uh, you know, just because climate change is also something that people create, you know, because of selfishness and arrogance and all of these things, you know, inequality is what people create. I just took a picture a while ago in the slum. There was some, you know, some young guys put, put up a big sign saying something like, poverty is not natural, it is man-made, right? So, like, everything is man-made, you know? And what I'm most upset about is this, just how people don't care about each other, basically, like, anywhere. And, um, and I don't think that's, that's a good thing. I don't think we're going to go far this way. And um, I think the statistics might say, you know, there's less people living in poverty, there's less people dying from hunger, you know, and all of these things. And that might be true, you know. More people are connected than before because of the internet and all this stuff. But, but we know better now, don't we? we? I think we know better. We don't yeah. have excuses <laughs> for this. Um, we should know better, I think, you know. Yeah. But some people are still in denial, you know. And um, so, yeah, so that's, that's what bothers me, you know. And if we can, like, if, if we can give some of these communities we work with an edge, you know, just to uh, argue on their behalf, you know, for something, you know, then, then we win, you know. Oftentimes, this they have better information about their own communities than their government has, you know. If we can at least do that to, like, shift the balance of power just a little bit, maybe, you know, then that's a win for, that's a win for me at least. The fact that they're not in the formal sector, the marginalized groups generally don't have a voice or an outlet to really, you know, explicitly say what it is that they want or what is important to them. So in a way, I'd say the information that we collect sort of Gives them, yeah, gives them that voice. Uh, mine is just, uh, I'll just talk about my nation because my country is in a mess at the moment. It really is in a political mess. It has been for probably the last decade. And the graft today is really at, at an all-time high. Basically, the theft and all the corruption is now, it's, it's, it's an everyday thing in Kenya. It's almost, it's not hush-hush anymore. It's worrying because Kenya is here to stay. We will all die someday, but our kids will be here, our kids' kids will be here. So for me, it's just, I grapple with the issue about us not understanding that we really are the ones who should be able to stand up and say, this is not what we voted for, this is not what we wanted. It's crazy that even myself as an educated young girl and you know, having that exposure, I would vote in a leader who literally will do nothing between, between now and 2022. I just, we need a wake-up call in Kenya. And I don't think that this is an actual, you know, it's an actual reality for a lot of people. They're still stuck under the, it's like you're in the shadows and you don't really understand that you can break free from this. It will take a lot of work, but it's doable. I grew up in former Yugoslavia, right? So I'm a little bit more cynical and I hope Kenya is here to stay. I really do, and I, look, I hope a lot of countries are here to stay, but I think we invented the term balkanization, right? Our country fell into seven different countries. I'm a little bit more aware of when I go to other places and I see the tension that they have, you know, and different communities that don't get along. It always frightens me a little bit, you know. And it could become fractured and exactly. divided. Yeah. And it's happening, you know. Um, countries are still falling apart no matter what, so... So that's why I'm saying that just this, people don't trust each other maybe as much as they should, you know. <laughs> On the happy side, what are you guys excited about? What have you seen that you're like, wow, that can have change? I saw the proliferation of mobile technology and the internet in Africa. I've, I've experienced it firsthand. And that's, 
the reason basically why I stayed here because I saw how it changed everything. The way people communicate, the, the way people collaborate. You know, you have things like Mpesa now where you can send money to the other side of the country in a second over your mobile phone, you know. You have all this social media, you know, uh, that people use to connect, create different groups. So I'm really excited about that. I think it made a big change already. And I think it's, like you said, now we know better because we're more connected to each other than before. So I was very excited about that, you know, and I still am, you know, I still think that access to internet, and it's a very good thing. You know, you think internet has been around for a while, but in some places, has been Not around so for that long, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's getting better, you know, and it's changing. Like it's, it's really it's changing the societies a lot. Even here, Michelle was talking about corruption. Now, corruption scandal is on Twitter immediately, and tens of thousands of Kenyans on Twitter will comment and joke about it, and it will be out there. You know, Kenyans on Twitter is probably one of the most hilarious <laughs> accounts on Twitter that there exists. There's, a, there's an account called Kenyan Twitter. Really? It can be brutal, but it can also be hilarious. Right? <laughs> but it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an amazing tool for transparency and accountability. You know, and so I'm still excited about that, even though it's now almost uh, an old technology and it's not even ten years old, probably. Right? It, are there any other businesses here in Kenya? that you've heard about that are doing pretty special things? I mean, there are about a billion of them. <laughs> it's hard to kind of... Yeah, I mean, this is this is the, basically across the street, there is a place called Bishop Magwa where you could argue that this Kenya's technology boom kind of started, you know. And that's where we started as well. It was a communal space with quick internet and where people could come together and talk about different opportunities and technology and you know building different applications and that basically grew out in on this street alone you would probably have hundreds of companies um, this is like the center of the Kenya Silicon Savannah the way they call <laughs> Silicon it, right? Savannah I love that yeah, you still have probably hundreds of companies just on this in this area alone doing all sorts of stuff and, and some, some have like a social element everything yeah you find all sorts of stuff social enterprise, just pure business. Um, there's so many applications that are used now in daily life that came from these people, you know, who started you know, very modest. And it's spread to other parts of the city now. Yeah, it's a, it's a big sector, there's a lot. I mean, you name it, there's probably a tool or an application out there, you know. So what do you guys think the role of social enterprises in driving change versus, say, government? I guess I can just talk from our own perspective, you know, like we really put uh, we put the community first and their need. That is the the lens that we look everything from, you know. The government not done, doesn't necessarily do it this way, you know, like building a port somewhere where there's already like no water. From they want to they want to move million people to a place where there's already a lack of water. And uh, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site protected area, you know, that doesn't make much sense to me if you ask me, but, but it's a purely top-down decision, right? Um, that's not how social enterprises or our work is done. You're gonna, this place will probably experience riots in the next couple of days because there's a massive road that is being built straight through Kibera and thousands of families are gonna lose their houses. That's also not a very bottom-up approach to doing things because where are those people going to go now? So I think that's a, that, that's a big difference is this top-down, bottom-up 
I think there's a role that social enterprises have to play definitely, but the, the government has to listen and maybe not implement everything, but at least something. You know. What's next for Spatial Collective in this year and the coming? Um, right now we're starting three new projects. We are digitizing the whole Zanzibar archipelago using drone imagery. So it's about a little bit less than half a million buildings that we're digitizing, the wow. networks and so on and so forth. Who, drives the, who flies the drones? The people of Zanzibar actually. Oh, really? yeah. Do you have to train, you train them? No, they, they, they got trained by, by someone else. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had the imagery and then they invited us to set up the digitization laboratory basically. So we're working with the government of Zanzibar and the university um, and they are creating basically the first not the first but the, the latest very comprehensive map of all of the structures. What they want to build is in a, in a sense like a building catastrophe, you know, to know how many houses there are, who lives there, how many people live in each house, whether it's this a housing or a business. So that's one. Then the Mastercard Foundation wants to reach out to youth in a more direct way to ask about, uh, particularly about employment. employment. Um, so what are the challenges, what are the opportunities, you know, they, they don't want to necessarily go through the intermediaries, but they mm -hmm. want to reach out to the youths directly. So Africa's Voices Foundation is helping us with setting up the yeah. system, right? Yeah, the platform that um, we're looking at, probably an SMS platform and also a social media as sort of platform that we can reach the youth. and. Ideally, MasterCard didn't really want to go through their grantees that they, that they work with that have access to this youth. And so Spatial Collective will come in in terms of engagement and just um, trying to work with different um, groups of youth in informal settlements, some that are in jobs, um, university graduates, and yeah, just trying to get some ideas about youth employment. Um, yeah, and then we are very passionate. Like The last couple of years, we did a lot on property rights. So we're working with the university in the US to, they're building a machine learning algorithm which will be able to, rec like you, you'll be able to feed it satellite imagery and the algorithm will be able to recognize different plots of land on its own. If you want to map, they want to map the whole Africa in this way, right? And there's <laughs> probably the a billion plots out there. <laughs> so and there's no way that the people can do it. It's going to take them, I don't know how long, right? Mm -hmm. But what they need is this algorithm needs to learn things and that's where we come in because we're we are you can feed feeding it, it mm, the information from the ground right so, so drones social media and machine learning <laughs> sounds pretty cool yeah. <laughs> quite an array you cut into. <laughs> so from all your experience and having a unique perspective on the world and where we're going if you could send out one piece of advice or, or a lesson to everybody in the world I know it's a bit of a grand question, <laughs> it's a bit of a doozy, but what would that be? Don't avoid the problem and don't avoid the issue. You don't have to solve all the issues, but just be part of the solution. Wherever you fit into that whole aspect, just do your part as an, in, as an individual in this world. Yeah, I like this, man. don't be a part of the problem, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can at ask you to do that. Yeah. yeah, I'll just add to that, you know, just don't, people, stop being selfish, right? You know, like, selfishness is not going to bring us anywhere. You know, it's, I think it's the cause of all the problems. <laughs> yeah, I've heard people say that, that 
selfishness or inward thinking or you know self-thinking as opposed to being a giver or being outward thinking um, has been linked to like depression and anxiety and things like it's actually not good for humans yeah. to be that way I mean I would say people we are probably very selfish being from naturally, yeah, naturally innate, right yeah. it's like it's in us because survival instincts and stuff yeah, yeah. so it, it makes kind of sense but except when seven billion people are yeah. selfish <laughs> it doesn't really, doesn't work. really work yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely so where can people find you guys if they want to learn more about spatial collective and the work you're doing so our web page is under construction but spatialcollective.com. We've been very busy, but we've been trying to build a website because our old website was a bit old. They can find us on Twitter. Mm -hmm. They can find us on Facebook. LinkedIn. LinkedIn. So they can just, you know, shoot us an email. We're very open. People come in and out like you saw. Somebody <laughs> just came in, took something, walked out without a word. So uh, our doors are always open. So anyone can come here and talk yeah. to us. Thank you so much, guys. That was an incredibly enlightening discussion. Really interesting to learn about this weird sector that you're in. But, <laughs> but it's such impactful work. Yeah, yes. it's so cool. I mean, I'm sure most people out there don't even know that this exists. But of course, knowledge is power, data is king. It's very cool what you guys are doing. So thank you very much for sharing. What we loved about this episode was that Primash has found a way to use his very unique skill set to empower so many people in underserved communities. Like he said, he is part of the action, doing fulfilling work and impacting real lives. We'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge that this episode is being released two weeks after a horrific terrorist attack took many lives in Nairobi. We send our love and thoughts to the people of Kenya and wish for you strength in unity. Peace to all and we will see you next time. <laughs>